Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. When I was uh, a small boy about 150 years ago, um, I used to like to, uh, particularly I think on a Saturday afternoon, kind of just uh, lay like broccoli in front of the TV. You have days like that? And, uh, and, And watch those old Western movies. You know what a Western is, don't you? Of course you do. It's America. The home of Westerns, right. And uh, the film would usually be uh, in black and white because, you know, that's how it was when I was a small boy. And, uh, and Dodge City would be kind of the backdrop for the film and, and the sheriff would be lying, bleeding, dying on the floor, having been shot by a couple of these outlaws, you know. Can you picture the scene? And you've got two bad guys, two baddies, kind of squaring up on each other in the main street. And one says those words to the other, this town ain't big enough for the two of us, right? And, of course, there would be the gunfight and, uh, you know, there'd be... You know, the undertaker would be next on scene, you know, measuring up for the box, you know, and... And that's how it goes. Well, we, we begin uh, this morning by looking once again at a, at a fight of a very different kind. Uh, a fight, a showdown, if you will, uh, between God and Pharaoh. Because Egypt ain't big enough for the two of them. Yeah, God is sovereign. He is the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. He is everything, isn't he? He's the beginning, the middle, <laughs> and the end. You know, he's, he's everything. And in him, all things hold together. Everything is, is for him, from him, through him, and to him. So people that think they know something, if they don't know Jesus, then they actually know zip. They know nothing, right? So God versus Pharaoh. It's, it's kind of, I kind of feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm kind of preaching from a book, uh, maybe a novel, you know, that, that you, you've read. It's kind of a whodunit. And you've already read the book and you know. And, and here I am kind of recounting it to you. You know the story, right? Anybody not know the story of Moses standing before Pharaoh, the plagues and and all of that? Everybody know the story? Yeah? I'll just sit down. (laughs) You're not going to let me off that easy, are you? So uh, week one, we were in Exodus chapter one, and uh, we were concerned with the fact that, that God is still on the lookout for men and women and young people who will trust him in difficult or hard times. Last week, 
uh, by God's grace. We were with Moses in his failure and he's been uh, ejected from Egypt and he finds himself wandering around in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Just kind of let that sink in, you know, from the palaces and the luxury of, of Egypt now demoted right to the very bottom rung on the ladder. He's in Midian in the wilderness where water even is a valuable, precious resource. And he is without status and he's occupying a place of obscurity in the shadows. He's even tending his father-in-law's sheep. And God all that time was preparing him for works of service. Everybody here familiar with Ephesians 2.10? We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, this was very much in evidence in Moses all throughout his life. And it's in evidence in your life and mine too. The greater the preparation, I guess, the greater the work of service still future to do. So 40 years for Moses in the desert of Midian. And then one day, remember, out of the ordinary, there's this bush that's on fire. But unlike any ordinary bush, it's not consumed by the flames. And God calls Moses and he sends him to Egypt, back to where he had come from. Kind of full circle. So he, he knew Exodus out of his his family home when he went into those into the bulrushes in, bulrushes in that basket, and he knew Exodus for himself when he when he had to flee to Midian, and now God's sending him back to Egypt to orchestrate another Exodus, and this time on a far greater level. The preceding forty years were training, preparation for everything that that God would have him do for his chosen people, Israel, out from, from Pharaoh's heavy hand of bondage. We find in God's strength this man, Moses, who never believed he was quite up to the task. Can we identify with Moses here? God, send anyone else you like, but don't send me. Send, send him. Or send her, but not me. Well, if you, if you think like that, you're in good company, right? And that's a really good place to be. I imagine 40 years before, Moses thought he was the man. That he was equipped and in the right place, and, you know, the status, the power, the authority to do anything that God wanted him to do. But 40 years in the desert place, God's university of, of learning God has stripped him back of himself and he's now in a place of humility where God can use him for his glory. When we come to the end of who we are and we depend upon God for everything, then that is where God can use us. Didn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes things like, you know, blessed is the man who, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. You know, blessed are the meek. You know, and, and so the list goes on. You know, the, the highest place on earth is, in God's economy, is down on your face, isn't it? Before God in, in, in prayer, isn't that right? You know, God's ways are counter-cultural, aren't they? 
Anything that the world runs after, God isn't concerned about. You know, the world looks at status and power and wealth and all of that. God doesn't care about that. Everything belongs to God anyway, right? Psalm 24, verse 1, the whole earth belongs to God. Everything in it. Every man, woman, child belongs to God. Everything is God's. So now Moses is 80 years of age. Anybody 80? Anybody feeling like 80? God isn't finished with you yet. Moses was 80 when he stood before the burning bush. And God called him into service. Stripped of himself. And all of his pride and arrogance and, and status and power. He, he had nothing but a staff that was in his hand to lead a flock of sheep that weren't his own. So Moses is humbled before God. He has nothing that the world would run after. And he's the one that God chooses to stand before Pharaoh, the prince of all Egypt. High and lifted up upon his throne, Pharaoh. Moses got to stand before Pharaoh. And of course, we, we know of all the objections and, and all of that, but God sends him. And God equips him because God sent him, right? If God sends you and me to do a work of service for him, then he will equip us to do it. He will provide all that's necessary for that work to be completed. And so, together with Aaron, his brother, Moses goes to Egypt. Before he arrives at Pharaoh's throne, of course, he has to meet with the elders of Israel. And initially, they're kind of hopeful. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? You know, you got the whip on your back and you've got to make bricks and, you know, build cities for Pharaoh. And any, any speak of, of liberation by God's hand is going to be a welcome, a welcome uh, kind of news, isn't it? Uh, but then when Moses uh, goes to, to Pharaoh and says, let God's people go, um, Pharaoh's response is what? Yeah, no problem. It's not, is it? It's, 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 it's you know, to Moses, it's, it's get out of here. You know, these Israelites, they're building our cities. You know, there's no way we're going to let them go. So, and because, Moses, you've kind of had the audacity to get in my face and, and demand that I let God's people, whoever he is, whoever, you know, let them go, then we're going to make life even harder for the Israelites. We're going to get them to make the same quota of bricks, but without straw. Anybody here today making bricks without straw? You know what I mean? When the work is hard, but then all of a sudden it gets so much harder. And you think, you know, where is God in this? Well, maybe the Israelites were asking that very same question. But God was in it, although it didn't seem like it at the time, right? And so they give Moses a hard time. Anybody here in church leadership? Pray for your church leaders, will you? Pray for your church leaders. You know, doing God's will sometimes can seem like a very steep uphill struggle. But we don't see things as God sees them, do we, very often? You know, God sees the whole picture. And if you're building or baking 
you know, you've got to bake bricks, but without straw. It's hard to see beyond, isn't it? You know, the immediate and see what God's doing way into the future. There's always a bigger picture, isn't there? We don't have the wisdom of God very often to see that. So pray for wisdom. Pray for your leaders. Be faithful in small things. Israel needed to be faithful in small things. And for them, at that time, it was meeting the full quota of bricks, even if it was without straw. Then, in Exodus, we're going to get to the scriptures in just a moment. Uh, the fight really begins, doesn't it? You know, in the blue corner, Pharaoh, and in the red corner, the almighty God. The arrogance of Pharaoh. Let's read about it. Turn with me then in your Bible, if you will, to Exodus chapter 5. I'm going to read a couple of verses, just literally two verses from Exodus chapter 5, and then eight verses from Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 5. I've tried my best to set the, the scene for you. And so we read. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Chapter 6, first eight verses. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they live as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Eight times in those verses of chapter 6, God says, I will. Eight promises. And five times God says, I am the Lord. 
God's reputation is at stake. When you and I, children of God, are in trouble, then in a very tangible sense, God also is in trouble too. You know what it's like as a parent. Any parents here this morning? Little Johnny fallen over again, bleeding knees. What do you do as a parent? You ignore little Johnny, don't you? No, you don't, do you? You don't. What do you do? Little Johnny's in trouble. You go and help, don't you? You speak comforting words and, you know, you put on the bandages after cleaning the wound, of course, you know, antiseptic and all that. But you, you get... Do you get the idea? When, when we as children of God are in trouble, God also is in trouble too. It's, it's his business when his children are in trouble. Remember that. When you're in trouble, remember that God cares. And in a, in a very real sense, he too is in trouble. He, he shares that with you and with me. And that's really comforting, isn't it? God is the covenant-keeping God. How many times in, in those verses in, in chapter 6 does God remind Israel, Moses, that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of, of Jacob? He, he's the covenant-keeping God. You know, the language of covenant is really interesting. It is the complete opposite it's quite helpful having a black line down here, actually. Let's, let's just say that covenant is on this side, okay? And contract is on this side. We all know what a contract is, don't we? A contract, the language of contract says, you will do X or else there is a penalty to pay, which is Y. Okay? The language of covenant declares, I will love you no matter what? Marriage is a covenant, right? Got to get that in there. The language of the marriage covenant is exactly what I've just said. I will love you no matter what. I was around somebody's home last night in the church here, games night, real good fun. On the wall, there was a little plaque. It went something like this. I, I love you to the moon and back. That's the language of covenant, isn't it? Contract, not so much, yeah? You know, cross the line and the axe falls. So we, we get a, a whole bunch of American TV over, over the pond, all right? You know, and we, we know about prenups, all right? You know about prenups? Well, prenups put you here, don't they? In contract? Amen. You know, no prenup, well, that's, that's covenant, isn't it? Because when you love, you take a risk, right? You make yourself vulnerable when you, when you love someone. That's, isn't that marriage? Here's a mind bender for you, going way into the New Testament now. Didn't Jesus, uh, or was it Paul? I can't remember. One of them spoke about the church being the bride of Christ. He was that. That was Paul, wasn't it? But the theme is there throughout the New Testament. Now, God loves his bride to the moon and back. Right? 
at least to the moon and back, you know? <laughs> now, way beyond the moon. It's, it's covenant. God's people, Israel, are in trouble. God loves his bride. He loves his own. His firstborn son, Israel, he loves. And the language of covenant doesn't forget, does it? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us uh, what love is, doesn't it? Can we, can we rattle a few of those things off? You know, love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, keeps no record of wrongs. I have to keep reminding my wife of that one. Uh, what else is there? I'm only kidding. Sorry. Long-suffering. You know, all of those things. You know, it doesn't envy. It's not boastful, not proud. You know, God loves his children. God loves his own. He loves you. Part of the church, he loves you. He loves me. Even when sometimes we forget his love, he doesn't forget his love for you or for me. He loves his firstborn son, Israel. And Israel is in trouble. And God had already promised, remember, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, that, he, that his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would be in bondage uh, in a land not their own for 400 years, but then they would be redeemed by, a might, by God's mighty outstretched and with great possessions. Well, the time is now. God always is on time, all right? He has a perfect plan. He's never early. He's never late. Always bang on time. Nothing takes him by surprise. Many things take us by surprise, don't they? But nothing takes God by surprise. <laughs> and Pharaoh is in the ring with God. Let the battle begin. All right? There are... Ten plagues. Now, I thought about going into great detail with each one of them, but I didn't think that was going to be too helpful. Um, well, first of all, we have the plague of blood. The Nile dies, right? It bleeds. Everywhere in Egypt, the River Nile turns to blood. Now, we need to understand that what is in view here in these plagues is a battle not just between God and Pharaoh, but God is at battle here in these plagues with every false god and idol in Egypt. If Egypt occupied Let's just say, use your imagination with me for a moment. If, if Egypt was a house on three stories and there were idols and gods and demigods on every level of the house in Egypt, God was at war with each and every one of them from the ground up. And as the plagues unfold, they go from the river and the earth to human flesh and the flesh of animals, and then, of course, the weather and the heavens are impacted also. So on every level, 
God is doing battle with the false gods of Egypt, as well as Pharaoh himself. I've said for the last two weeks, if you only remember one thing about what I say, uh, and I'm going to say, I don't normally do that, I don't normally say that, but I'm going to say it again today. If you only remember one thing I say this morning, remember this. It is utter folly to defy God. Pharaoh is in defiance of God. I don't know the Lord, he he declared, and therefore I have no need to obey him. So two kinds of people in the world then, those that know the Lord and obey him and those that don't know him and don't feel the need to obey him. So it begs the question, which which camp are you and I in this morning? Do we know the Lord? And if we do, we, we love him, we want to please him, therefore we seek to honor him, we seek to obey him. But if, if we don't know the Lord, then we're king of our lives, right? And, and not God. So two kinds of people in the world. Pharaoh declares to Moses in the sight of God, I don't know the Lord and therefore I'm not going to obey him. So judgment falls and it falls here in this moment in history with these plagues. So the Nile, the river, is impacted, it dies, and it bleeds. All Israel suffers. Understand this, that one man's disobedience, refusal to to honor God, to obey God, to worship God, impacts the whole nation. One man sat upon the throne His refusal to honor God impacts everybody negatively. When you and I sin, we all know what sin is, don't we? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the mark. Sin is actually um, a hunting term or definition. It means to miss the mark. Uh, Anybody good at archery? You aim your arrow at the target, don't you? And the idea, of course, is, I imagine, to hit the bullseye, right? If you kind of mess up, your arrow falls short, doesn't it, of the target? Well, that's what sin is. That's a New Testament definition of sin. It's, it's a falling short. It's missing the mark. When Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of here, I don't know your God, and I certainly won't obey his command through you to let his people go. His error, his lack of judgment, his unrighteousness, his pride, his arrogance, that impacted upon the whole land, from the youngest to the oldest, even to the cattle and the crops in the field. Everything and everyone was impacted negatively because of one man's arrogance and disobedience. We need to think carefully, don't we, when we take a similar kind of stance. You know, most of us know what it is like to be grumpy at home. You know, it affects everybody, doesn't it? Well, here is Pharaoh sat upon Egypt's throne, and it's a much bigger deal. So, ten plagues. Blood in the Nile. Frogs. Who likes frogs? Apparently, they taste like chicken. I don't know. But can you imagine frogs everywhere? Like, 
Don't bother ordering the new carpet, love, because we've got frogs. It's like the frogs everywhere. You, you know, you couldn't see the carpet for frogs. Gnats. Ah. Ever been bitten by a gnat? Of course you have. It stings, doesn't it? It's like just one gnat. Can you imagine just like not being able to see anything but gnats? And just one gnat, one gnat makes that horrible whizzing noise, doesn't it? Can you imagine like just not being able to see your hand because of gnats? I mean, just, just you know, we, we kind of skip over these, these verses in Scripture. We don't, we don't really take in what, what's being described to us. It's just gnats, just just everywhere, flies. Just one, when you're trying to eat your burger, is a nightmare, isn't it? Can you imagine flies everywhere? With the fourth plague, flies, God actually then begins to make a distinction between his own people and the people of Egypt. So helpful black line again. So this is Egypt, sorry about that. You're all, you're all in Egypt this morning, okay? But over here, this is Goshen. It's kind of like, it, sorry, Goshen wasn't a very affluent place. I'm sorry, you know, it was kind of an impoverished kind of place, Goshen. But you guys all live in Goshen, all right? Okay, but this is Egypt. And it's kind of luxury in Egypt compared to Goshen, sorry, you know. Great zip code, not so much, okay? So God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and his own people in Goshen with the beginning of the fourth plague, the plague of flies. Then comes the plague upon the livestock. I mean, this is livelihood now, all right? You know? Livestock, that means... No steak, doesn't it? Whether there were any Texans in Egypt, I don't know. But livestock is, is impacted and, and dies, and uh, this, this plague falls upon the livestock. Uh, but God's people, Israel, in Goshen, happy days. All right? So plagues over here, no plagues over here. All right? So after livestock, we have, do you remember, boils. Everybody had, anybody had a boil? Not pretty, right? Apparently. Uh, then comes, and this affects now human flesh. All right, so every, every area of life is being impacted here, uh, from the water to the crops to... Uh, to human flesh and animal flesh. Then we have hail. Now... As the plagues unfold, the intensity heightens. Hail, the weather system is impacted. Then we have locusts. Locusts, they, they eat everything, don't they? You know, they you know, there's no hope now with a locust, surely. And as the story unfolds, you'll you read that, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart in response to different plagues, but also God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's important for us to understand. After locusts, darkness. Darkness that you can feel. 
darkness that envelops you. Terrible, terrible times in Egypt. Never again seen. I want to direct your thinking in these next few minutes to Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 and following. All right? If you want to turn to it, feel free to do so. You don't have to. But a key theme running through those verses is, is simply this. And, and the phrase goes something like this. God gave them over. All right? Now, God is not in the business of competition. All right? Remember what's at stake here on the battlefield in Egypt with all of these plagues is, is God going up against not only Pharaoh, but all of the false gods and idols in Egypt. And God is one by one smashing them down to the ground. The Egyptians depended upon the Nile, for example, for their livelihoods, for their very life. And they would worship the God of the Nile. But God, in killing the Nile and making it bleed to death, is, is saying, I am the Lord. There is no other. And time and time again, as these plagues unfold, that's the message that God is declaring to the people of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am sovereign. And time and time again, Pharaoh, in response to Moses and these plagues, is snubbing his, his nose at, at God and Moses and saying, I don't know your God. I'm not going to obey him. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. There comes a time when if you and I turn away from God and refuse God's word to us, there comes a time when God says enough and just gives us over to what we choose or to who we choose. God's not in the business of competing with things or people in our own lives. And if the time comes when we don't feel God kind of tugging on our, our line, then rather than thinking, well, that's great, we should be thinking, I'm in, now in very real danger because God gives us over to what or who we choose. Do you remember Jonah? God pursued him through the storm. And he sent a whale for him. But when God doesn't send the storm into our experience, he may well have given us over to what it is we have chosen for ourselves. Pharaoh hardened his heart to such an extent that God just said, enough, over to you. And of course, the judgments fell. Amazing to me that the people in Egypt didn't go up against their king and kind of pull him down off the throne. Do you think that kind of strange? I mean, maybe Pharaoh had such a grip upon, upon power and, and such an influence over the people. I mean, that must well have been the case. But God is dethroning Pharaoh. You're all sitting there thinking probably, well, Jeremy, you, you've spoken about nine plagues, but what about the last one? The last plague, of course, is the death of the firstborn, isn't it? And that's kind of difficult territory, isn't it? 
God gives to Moses an instruction concerning a Passover meal. A new meal, a new festival or ordinance is is given to, to Israel now through Moses. And in Exodus chapter 12, the detail is quite meticulous. God's people, Israel in Goshen, they are to take uh, a lamb, a male lamb of a certain age, and they are to slaughter it, the meticulous detail. And what are they to do? They are to spread across the, the lintel and the doorposts the blood of the lamb. And as described in Exodus uh, chapter 12, at midnight, God sends his angel to destroy the firstborn son of all Egypt. But when the destroyer sees the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, of those in Goshen, those who belong to God, covered by the blood, the angel of death will pass over and no child will be harmed. Of course, as Christians, we we can't help but, but see that as a foreshadowing to the cross, can we? I imagine in this room, with a congregation of this size, there is at least one person here who is sat where Pharaoh was sat. One person, maybe just one, who is in denial concerning God, denial concerning his authority, his sovereignty, his lordship in their life. Um, Maybe there is one person here who is... uh, living for themselves and and not for God, Uh, worshipping, although they might not describe it like that, idols rather than the one true living God, you know, lifeless idols, things, stuff, material things. Um, So I just really want to draw to a close now and, and just remind you of the fact that It's foolishness in the extreme to continue to defy God. And and I think this is a word that challenges us all at at different levels, isn't it? Because if if we searched our our hearts before God, then then I, I guess if we're really honest before God, we would, by his grace, be able to identify things in our lives that don't have a a rightful place there. Maybe you're listening to me and you you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And judgment is just around the corner. Um, One of my favourite verses is, is kind of really difficult at the front, but really great on the back. You want to know what it is? It's Romans 6, verse 23. Anybody know what it says? The wages of sin is death. Welcome to Pharaoh's world, right? The wages of sin is death. That's a non-negotiable. That's, that's just fact. Hebrews 9, 27 says it is destined for man once to die and then face judgment. 
Right? That's really bad news, isn't it? But Pastor Mike said the word but. See, that's kind of a hinge upon which the bad news turns, isn't it? Into good news. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's the best news ever, isn't it? Now, I say that back home sometimes, and the people are going, yeah, okay. You know, you go to a ball game, and it's... Go to church, and it's... The wages of sin is death. Pharaoh and Egypt were about to realize that, big time. But the gift of God is eternal life. I just want to... Praise the Lord. There may be just one person here who's never really got that message. My prayer this morning is that everyone here will not only hear the message but receive it. That lives will be changed for the glory of God. Because it is folly, utter utter foolishness to defy God to his face. Because there comes a time when God says, enough. There's a a lovely verse, and I love this verse from Isaiah 55, uh, verse 6 or 7, can't remember. And if if you want to, it speaks of repentance. That's kind of a big church word, right? Repentance. It it just really means just to do a U-turn, okay? So listen for the word turn here, because that speaks of repentance. And you can't turn apart from faith. And that's a gift. The gift of God is faith. If you want to turn to God, just ask God for the gift of faith to do that. He's very gracious. So the verse goes like this, two verses, Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. And he will, that's a promise, he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon If you know yourself this morning to be in need of God's pardon, just simply turn to the Lord and be saved. The judgment that is due to you and to me has already been put on Christ. And that's good news. Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you for your love for for us and thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood upon Calvary's tree, taking the punishment that was rightly due to us upon himself. 
Lord, help us each one in this room to know Christ as Saviour and Lord, Master and Forgiver. Lord, if there is anybody here in this room this morning who doesn't know you in such a way that saves them from an eternity apart from you, Lord, please bring them to yourself. Let them turn to you, Lord. Trusting in the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. So Lord, come and have your way with us. Take us out of Egypt into your promised land. For the glory of Christ alone we pray and all God's children say, Amen. Thanks for listening. God bless you.